bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. This is the Tuesday, July 13th, 2021 podcast. I'm very excited about today's podcast topic, which addresses a couple of questions that we receive often from clients that are thinking of applying for new market tax credit allocation authority. One is whether there are particular types of borrowers that are underserved by existing CDEs. And the second is how a new market tax credit allocation applicant can improve their chances of getting a larger new market tax credit award. And the good news is the answer to this question actually connects the two questions. And by the way, now is a good time to discuss application strategy as we await the announcement of 2020 allocation awards, which will be followed by the opening of the 2021 allocation round. So the answer that connects these you know, two questions is the topic of today's podcast. And it has to do with the specific strategy that does serve underserved community borrowers and helps the CDE receive a larger new market tax credit award. And that strategy is to commit to using a portion of one's allocation to make small dollar loans. Now, small dollar loans are loans of $2 million or less, and this is nothing new to the new market tax credit incentive, though most CDEs travel in a higher loan pool or higher equity contribution amounts of over $2 million per loan transaction. In today's podcast, we're going to talk about some of the reasons why this is a unique strategy, as well as a cost-effective way to execute small dollar loans. And this is done principally through loan pools, and we'll talk about that in more detail. Joining me to discuss this important topic is Aaron Neff. Aaron is a principal in Novogratz Dover, Ohio office. Aaron works a few days a week in the office and the rest of the time from home as part of a flex schedule. As of now, about 40% of Novogratz professionals in the Dover location have returned to the office in some capacity. And Aaron is one of the Novogratz tax and audit specialists out of that office. She has experience helping clients with new market tax allocation applications all the way through helping them understand compliance considerations after they've been successful in getting awards. Now, Aaron's going to share a lot of insights with us today about small dollar loans and loan pools, uh, the benefits of them, and also, and probably more importantly, some of the compliance risks, and even more important than talking about the compliance risk is how to avoid them, (laughs) and some of the common pitfalls that some clients come to us not thinking about in advance. Unfortunately, we're able to inform them about some of these pitfalls and how to avoid them. So we have a lot to cover today. So if you're ready, let's get started. So Aaron, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Mike. So let's start with the CDE committing to make a small dollar or committing to make small dollar loans. How does that help them get a larger allocation? Well, that's a great question to get started. As you mentioned, the award announcement is pending um, for this summer. And we've seen typically following that the new round of the allocation application starting um, and opening up following the award announcement. Uh, So typically when a CDE does commit to make a small dollar loan, it does so by creating a loan pool fund, as you mentioned in your introduction. Um, On the NMTC allocation application, there are several questions in part one where the CDE discusses its business strategy, and there are 25 points available in part one for the CDE, um, with up to 10 additional priority points available within this section for their projected business activities. This is an area where a CDE may include a loan pool fund for smaller dollar loans, in order to maximize its potential to attain those points that are available. 
Now, as we know, part one is scored during phase one of the application review process. And so it certainly benefits a CDE to score as many points as possible in this section to ensure that it moves forward to phase two of the application review process. Um, the loan pool fund is something that would be considered an innovative investment as part of the part one responses for the CDE. And this does allow the CDE to score better in that section, but it also maximizes the award that this, the CDFI fund will allocate to an award recipient if they've made that commitment in their application. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's question 19. And the question 19 is technically not scored for purpose right. of the initial points. But once you get over the hurdle with the points and you can be discussing the loan review strategy as part of your overall business strategy, so it could help more generically. But the small dollar loan pool could help you get a larger award by virtue of that one question being scored once you get to the point where the fund is looking to see to determine the dollar amount to award a given CDE. Does that sound about right? That's exactly right. That That's spot on. Great. So the fund, obviously, by having this innovative financing uh, question uh, and the fact that they are using this as a means of determining award size, uh, they're, in, they're incentivizing CDFIs, or I should say CDEs, to make small dollar loans. Why do you think the CDFI fund wants to be incentivizing CDEs to make small dollar loans? Well, I think it's important that we remember that the NMTC program was meant to provide subsidized financing to projects of all sizes and not just those that are larger in scale um, with multiple CDEs and organizations involved. Um, by analyzing the extensive data that is reported by CDEs through the ILR and TLR reporting process, the CDFI fund is able to determine that smaller projects are not being funded through the program. And so these borrowers are underserved. Um, I think this is the motivation for the CDFI fund to incentivize CDEs to do smaller dollar deals um, to meet the needs of qualified businesses that need to complete smaller projects. Right. And can you describe for our listeners who maybe aren't as informed what the acronym ILR <laughs> and TLR stand for? <laughs> Certainly I won't, so. it, I won't have it for you. I said CDEs. I didn't really define community development entities. So I do take for granted that clients know what a CDE is, just like they might know what an LLC is, limited liability company. But ILR and TLR might be going a little bit farther out. Sure. And so the ILR means institution level report and the TLR is your transaction level report. And so the difference is the ILR is more um, broad and looking at the organization as a whole and how they're executing their new markets tax credit strategy and financing. Whereas the TLR or transaction level reporting is much more detailed and nuanced where a CDE is reporting on specific transactions, the projects that it's working on and reporting back to the CDFI fund, um, kind of their measurements and, right. and so on. And just to put a finer uh, point on your uh, discussion about what the CDFI fund is able to determine, they're able to determine that smaller projects aren't being funded at the levels at which they think they should be. Because we know sure. there are smaller projects getting funded, but basically the CDFI fund is trying to put a little bit of a thumb on the scale for there to be more uh, small dollar loans. So thank you, Aaron. Maybe, you know, the obvious next question, at least obvious to me, <laughs> 
is why aren't CDEs making small dollar loans without the CDFI fund putting the thumb on the scale with this additional incentive to make small dollar loans? So a CDE with an allocation award would find that it's less expensive and time consuming to make one or two large loans as opposed to making numerous small loans. Um, you know, as a result of this, they can provide lower interest rates to the borrowers and commit more of their allocation to making loans as opposed to paying fees. Uh, this is generally seen by CDEs as more competitive for purposes of their application and the potential to receive an award allocation. Okay, that makes uh, perfect sense. It definitely is less time consuming, as you mentioned, less costly to make a handful of loans as opposed to you know, many small loans. Um, so you were talking now, or you know, in the intro, I talked about you know making small dollar loans, and that these small dollar loans are you know commonly done through a loan fund. Uh, can you share with me what exactly when we say a loan fund? How is a loan fund different, <laughs> a small dollar loan fund different than a typical CDE structure to make you know a handful of larger loans? So a loan fund is an entity that receives equity from an investor and makes multiple loans to multiple borrowers. Um, this is compared to an entity that receives an equity investment and makes a single loan to a single borrower, which is what is more typically the path that a CDE would take for a new markets tax credit deal. So the typical structure would be an investor puts investment in a CDE. That CDE makes a loan to one business, a larger loan to that business. And oftentimes it'll be maybe a senior loan and a subordinate loan, or there'll be a piece of it as an equity investment and the like. Uh, but I guess that's generally one entity per borrower. And here we're talking about one entity for multiple borrowers with multiple loans. Is that that's a, correct. Okay. So with that said, you know, what, what's so different <laughs> about that? Uh, you know, obviously I have my ideas, but if you could share with the audience some of the considerations that come to play when you're forming that CDE that's going to have multiple borrowers and multiple uh, loans. Well, I, you know, as you said, there are many considerations um, and each person may have different areas that come to mind. Um, but I would say for me, the three major areas to consider are uh, first, compliance with the NMTC program requirements, um, and then secondly, state tax implications um, if you're making loans to borrowers in multiple states. And then third, there may be a perception of a higher default risk of a borrower or potential for bankruptcy uh, when you're making more loans. Um, and kind of the law of averages catching up with you at that point uh, as you as you lend to an, a greater number of borrowers in the case of a loan pool fund. I definitely think the third one you mentioned about sort of default perceptions of a higher risk of borrower bankruptcy is one that uh, I'd love to have better data on whether or not there actually is a higher risk mm -hmm. of a right, borrower right. Uh, bankruptcy or default. But Certainly one thing is true that if you make a lot more loans, <laughs> the chances of any one loan uh, having an issue uh, does rise. So let's let's talk about that in a moment. I shouldn't uh, talk about number three. Let's go back to, <laughs> let's start first with uh, just new market tax credit compliance. Um, what are uh, a couple of the new market tax credit compliance issues that are particularly unique to a loan fund that, uh, or have aspects to it that are unique to a loan fund 
that you wouldn't necessarily be seeing when you're thinking about a single loan? Sure. Uh, so I would say that the two compliance requirements that jump to mind immediately for me are the substantially all requirement and the operating income redemption calculation. And maybe you could explain what each of those are generally sure. for our listeners before um, we go into the specifics of the application to the loan fund. Right. So the substantially all requirement is um, statutorily that 85% of the investment uh, must remain with the borrower in the form of the Kaliki financing. Um, however, the more standard amount that we see that's that's included in a CDE's application and then consequently in the allocation agreement with the CDFI fund would be 95% or possibly even a 98% um, commitment. Uh, so that's one of the first considerations. And then secondly, we have um, the operating income redemption calculation. Now that is the annual calculation of the CDE's operating income uh, where the CDE has to make sure that its distributions are within that permitted amount to distribute back to the investor uh, and make sure that it is not a redemption of the Kaliki loan principle, which would cause it to be, could cause it to be in violation of the substantially all requirement. So let's start with the substantial all requirement. As you noted, the substantial all requirement is that, you know, substantially all of the <laughs> investments need to be qualified low-income community investments, or what we commonly refer to as qualikis. <laughs> uh, and as you also noted, you know, applicants as part of their application, as part of the competitive process, will commit a higher amount to commit uh, to make uh, qualified low-income community investments or qualikis, and it'll be 95 or 98 percent. Uh, and I understand that if you're making, if an entity is making one loan, then it's pretty straightforward. Just make sure that that one loan is eligible and you're at the you know, 95 or 98%. But if you have multiple loans, uh, what are some of the unique aspects of multiple loans as it applies to this sub-all test? Well, that's, that's a great question. And so what we've seen um, it, in CDEs that have done the loan pool funds is that because they are small dollar loans, um, the loan pool fund may be structured with amortizing loans. And so those start repayment you know, over the term of the loan. Uh, or we see loans that have a shorter term, you know, so that they are repaid sooner or during the seven-year compliance period. Um, and so that creates the challenge for the CDE to make sure that they meet their sub-all requirement. Because if I have principal returned, uh, you know, I have to reinvest that into another qualified low-income community investment or make another Kaliki loan if I'm still inside that seven-year compliance period from the original equity investment, qualified equity investment date. Um, so that just creates a challenge to the CDE um, that they must closely monitor those amounts and make sure that they are uh, having those loan, those funds redeployed and they are redeployed to qualified businesses, which again is just an ongoing monitoring and, and compliance issue that you would want to be aware of before you enter a loan pool fund and kind of make that commitment in your award application. You know, you want to know what you're getting yourself into. Right. No, it sounds like it has to be much more actively managed, if you will, in terms right. of that loan pool, as opposed to a single loan that you know won't be repaid for seven years. That could be a little bit more passively managed. Exactly. So let's let's turn to the operating income calculation. This is something that I'm dating myself when I think about <laughs> back in 
in 2000 when this act was enacted. <laughs> and we were all wondering, you know, with respect to new market tax credit finance transactions, you know, once you make the loan, you know, you, you're allowed to make a distribution of earnings, but you can't make a distribution of the original investment. And the question then became, well, how do you know you know, cash is cash. It's not like the cash says this came from my original investment and this cash is from the earnings. Cash is fungible. So there had to be some methodology for determining whether or not in a given year, the amount of the distribution to an investor was the income on the investment as opposed to a return of the original equity invested because original equity has to be out for the, has to stay in the CD for the full seven years. And then that led to this notion of having to calculate the operating income of the entity. And so maybe you can talk about how, you know, if you have a, you know, a single transaction with one or two loans and it's out for seven years, it's pretty predictable what the interest income will be and all the rest. Once again, that can be a little bit more passively managed. Maybe you can talk about how this operating income calculation is more challenging with a loan pool and how it has to be more actively managed. Sure. So like you said, uh, the, the single loan to a single borrower is uh, a little bit easier to predict the operating income. Um, you can have a fixed interest rate, fixed fees, and that allows us to foresee what amount of cash is available for distribution, like you said. Um, but when we start entering the low loan pool fund, um, it, you may have loans that are made at different rates. And so that could cause a challenge for predicting your income. Um, we have seen some of the amortizing loans have, again, repayment terms where the principal is reducing during the compliance period. And therefore, your interest collection, your interest income is not a set amount on a quarterly or monthly basis, uh, whatever that term may be. So it's a little bit more challenging to determine what amount of cash can I distribute and not you know, exceed my operating income and potentially consider this a return of capital. Um, so again, it just comes back to needing to monitor that much more closely and set up those amortizing schedules in a manner that you know the CDE is anticipating loan repayments and an uneven interest income you know on an annual basis, and and then considering their distributions in light of that uh, carefully each year. And that probably plays into when we discussed earlier making a commitment to do ninety five percent or ninety eight percent. Right as a subalt test that uh, 95% is probably a better choice if you're going to have a lot of these loan pools because you don't know, you don't want to have footfalls or something below the 98%. Of course. Um, yep. Which for our listeners in the audience might be saying, what was all that? <laughs> <laughs> Call Erin and she can explain it to you in uh, more detail. Uh, but that, so going beyond new market tax credit, sort of, you know, sort of statutory slash program compliance with respect to those two issues. And as you noted, there's other issues as well, but there's only so much we can cover on a podcast. I wanted to turn next to, you know, state taxes. You mentioned, you know, the implications of state taxes that, you know, could be broader with respect to a loan fund. And maybe you could, you know, share with our listeners, you know, what they should be thinking about there. Right. So um, like you said, when there is a single loan to a single borrower, things are much more predictable. So we know where that borrower is located. You know, this may be an area where the CD is familiar with the state filing requirements um, and state tax requirements. So, you know, that that's something they can 
establish up front before they close the deal and they know what they're getting into. Um, but when you start making multiple loans, you may see that those loans are going to borrowers in different states or even different cities. You know, there are city and local tax implications on some of these deals. Um, so just again, cautioning a CDE contemplating a loan fund to do your due diligence up front and make sure that you're considering state tax filing requirements before entering into various loans with multiple borrowers in different locations. Yeah, you definitely have to be careful where your borrowers are located from a state tax. And I'm glad you mentioned the local tax because there's definitely been you know, situations where, you know, a loan gets made to uh, a borrower in a different city within a state. And mm -hmm. it wasn't originally projected that they were going to be making loans in that city. And then lo and behold, there's some local tax as well that wasn't contemplated. Um, and here we're talking about state and local tax issues that you want to be aware of and conscious of before you're making the loans. There's also other licensing and other rules, but we're not uh, advising on that. But I would just suggest to our listeners that they, when you're doing multiple loans, particularly in multiple states or communities, just make sure you're dealing, you're getting all the appropriate licensing that's needed. So what are other recommended practices then when you're thinking of loan funds with borrowers in multiple states or even multiple cities, depending upon where the cities are? Well, I would recommend that you call your uh, tax advisor <laughs> and <laughs> I, I happen to know um, a few good ones. <laughs> and so, but of course, you know, we, we at Novogratic um, do spend a, quite a, a bit of time looking into the different tax filing requirements in, in all of our states and in various city um, and municipal locations, as you mentioned. Um, and we're, we're constantly updating those, uh, you know, updating our understanding. We do trainings and we make sure that we are on abreast of all, all the changes in the different state and local filing requirements so that we can be a resource for our clients or, or CDEs who may have questions about what this would entail. No, that's uh, great advice. And certainly with whatever checklist or something they have internally, you know, there needs to be uh, a, you know, some item that you have to check off that says, you know, have we addressed, you know, state and local tax obligations in this right. uh, community, in this state before? Uh, and if not, uh, reach out and get that advice. So the third item that you mentioned had to do with the risk of a default by a borrower. And as I noted earlier, when I was sort of jumping ahead, <laughs> I noted that, you know, I, I myself don't know to what extent uh, individual borrowers are more likely to default in a loan fund versus, you know, a handful of sort of larger uh, fund, a lot, handful of larger borrowers. Um, but I do know that uh, a loan fund is making more loans. <laughs> so I do know that if a loan fund is making enough loans, the law of averages will catch up and there will be a default by a borrower, potentially a bankruptcy where you know, uh, you know, a portion or all of the loan balance will be lost. Uh, so heading into this, what are some of the considerations that a CDE would want to be bearing in mind? Uh, you know, because you have to, you don't want this, you don't want to go in without realizing this is a, a higher probability event. And you would think there are steps that could be taken to address that. So one thing a CDE can do um, is review its sub-all commitment in its application. Um, we've mentioned a few times in our discussion already that uh, the CDE is going to be required to keep a certain amount of its equity investment in the Qualig B or the qualified business. 
so we tend to see that percentage at 95% or 98% even. And so if a CDE has included in its application that it will keep 98% of its equity investment in the CDE, I'm sorry, in the Qualig B, they might consider reducing that to 95%, which would then allow them to hold some of the cash at the CDE level and have a loan loss reserve to, to accommodate any potential default of the multiple borrowers. Because like you said, you know, just by nature of having more loans, you know, it's more likely that one of those loans is not going to repay according to the expected terms. No, that's a great advice to be thinking about the 95% versus 98% uh, commitment and gauging how large a loan loss reserve you want to have on hand. Uh, in a loan fund. A lot of uh, these loan pools and loan funds uh, end up being shorter terms or revolving. So whereas I mentioned earlier, the prototypical, I'm not sure how prototypical it is, but the archetype maybe (laughs) of a large loan, a larger size loan to a single borrower or larger size loans to a single borrower uh, you know, that's a term of seven years, interest only, and absent, you know, some default by that large borrower, things will kind of progress, you know, you know, without too much effort on behalf of the CDE. Uh, when you do the loan funds, um, as I understand it, the loans generally aren't going to be interest only for seven years. A lot of these loans will be shorter term, they might be amortizing, they might be revolving. And, and, and how is it that uh, a CDE should be looking at that type of loan uh, in terms of managing that pipeline? So um, as you said, there, there could be revolving loans or shorter term, shorter term loans where the loan is repaid to the CDE during the seven-year compliance period. Um, but the CDE still has that requirement to keep those funds invested in a qualified business. Uh, regardless, through the end of that seven-year compliance period. And sometimes we've even seen borrowers repay, you know, an an unintended or unanticipated repayment because, you know, things are going well and they don't want to continue having this overhead of a loan on their books. Um, So what a CDE would want to do is just make sure that they maintain a number of the smaller dollar projects in their new markets pipeline and make sure that they're ready to redeploy those funds kind of rapidly because there is a timeline um, that the CDFI fund requires the CDE to make that reinvestment um, when they do receive a principal repayment. So again, you know, just having that pipeline of projects that qualify and, and having kind of close contact with those projects on an ongoing basis allows the CDE to be more su- successful with the loan pool fund. It definitely seems like you have to have that ongoing pipeline to deal with those loans that pay off before they're expected to pay off, mm-hmm. <laughs> to deal with those loans that pay off according to schedule or, or you know pay down according to the schedule over the seven-year period. But you also have to be aware that some that you expect repayments <laughs> you know, might end up in default and not come in. So you can't be making commitments uh, to loan specifically on a given date until you know that you're going to have that capital back. So I definitely can see the challenges of managing a loan fund. Maybe I'd ask you, you know, from the standpoint of the borrowers, uh, you know, your thoughts in terms of, you know, how to go about uh, managing this process. Uh, it seems like you probably have to keeping very close contact with your borrowers uh, in order to know 
not, you know, what's happening with respect to either a prepayment, a regular payment, or you're not going to get a payment. Right. Right. So, and I think, um, it's important, as you mentioned, that the CDE really does have, you know, more frequent communication with their borrowers and potential borrowers. Like I said, those that are in their pipeline um, for future deals. And so, you know, some of that does lend itself to, you know, increased kind of transaction costs again at the CDE you know, it's going to take more time for them to manage a loan pool fund. And so before making a commitment to doing that, you would certainly want to be aware that it's going to take more effort um, just all around kind of, it's not just getting the deal done in the, in closing, as we talked about before, but also the ongoing effort to, uh, you know, in the asset management area, uh, is going to be greater right. for these loan pool funds uh, compared to those one-off loan deals, as you mentioned, um, just because, you know, you're dealing with more parties and, and having to contact them more often. So basically upfront, you know, give thought to what your sub equipment is going to be, size up your loan reserves, and then uh, make sure that you have the budget for increased asset management costs. Uh, over the life of the loans to be able to keep that contact sort of in place and then be constantly managing your new market tax credit, you know, pipeline uh, of small loans as the revolving loan fund revolves. So that's great. So these are all obviously important issues for CDEs need to be aware of if they're considering whether to do a loan fund. Uh, so the natural question comes up, I'm sure from some listeners right now that, well, wh- what if uh, I listen to this and I think the ben- I see these benefits, I see the risks, and is there another direction I can go? What are some alternatives to doing a loan fund if uh, entity wants to still make small dollar loans? So that's that's really a tough question, actually, um, to answer. But I think that a CDE could still make smaller dollar loans um, without utilizing a loan pool fund if it considers reducing its fees um, or absorbing those transaction costs um, to make sure that you know they can provide that financing to underserved borrowers, basically. Uh, so the what the CDE would have to kind of take the perspective that these smaller dollar loans are being subsidized almost internally by the other loans, the larger loans that the CDE is making um, to single borrowers, uh, where where maybe some of the transaction costs are a little easier to absorb across the board. And that's definitely what I've seen on some transactions. So that's what they do. They basically, you know, make some of the small dollar loans and know that, you know, they're uh, running at a loss on the small dollar loans, but the larger organization, it's furthering a purpose of the larger organization. So they're uh, uh, approving of that, but they have other resources to cover that uh, deficit. So thank you very much for all of these useful insights. Is there anything else you wanted to share? Uh, with our listeners about small dollar loans before we close? Uh, Well, I agree. We have covered a lot of information today. Um, And so uh, just in closing, you know, as I said before, I would encourage a CDE that has identified a need for smaller dollar loans with flexible financing um, to borrowers in the low income communities that it serves, um, you know, consider doing a small dollar loan pool fund um, but before you do that, you know, pick up the phone and call call Novogradic, call other professional 
professionals to get more information and ask your questions, um, you know, gauge how it might work for your CDE, because of course, every CDE has, you know, different needs that, that would need met. Um, once you decide to do that, you know, engage Novogratic to help you, what we can do is provide loan amortization schedules, you know, help with reinvestment requirements, substantially all calculations, the redemption safe harbor calculations, state filing research, um, you know, all these areas that we talked about today. Uh, you know, I know my colleagues and I are eager to work with CDEs and help them through these questions. Um, and to that point, if there's anyone listening who would like more information, um, I'd be happy to uh, receive an email and, and kind of explore more options with you and, and get more information. Um, so my email address is erin.neff at novaco.com. And that's E-R-I-N dot N-E-F as in Frank, F at Novaco. Um, I would be happy to discuss with anyone um, any potential questions that you may have on making smaller dollar loans and utilizing a loan pool fund to do so. Super. Uh, thank you again, Aaron, for providing that overview. This is a great reference point for CDs to continue or to begin thinking about how to execute small dollar loans, particularly through a loan fund. Uh, it's a much te more technical, nuanced topic than we really have time for in a podcast. Uh, I do encourage our listeners to contact Aaron with any questions uh, and for other assistance with allocations uh, or investments. I'd encourage qualified businesses as well. Those that want to be borrowers from uh, New Market Tax Credit awardees can reach out to Aaron to help uh, ensure that you're a qualified borrower uh, and that uh, she can also potentially connect you to other uh, CDEs at looking to make loans in the areas that you're working. Um, it is also something that I hope that as more of these loan funds, uh, you know, do propagate that we'll be able to have Aaron back and discuss more details uh, about what she's learning. And maybe she'll end up developing information on the default risk of loan funds versus uh, others. But please, Aaron, hang tight for our off mic section. Uh, I'm going to first bring the formal part of the podcast to a close. For our listeners, I want to encourage you to tune in next week. Uh, I'm uh, privileged that my partner, Dirk Wallace, returned to Tax Credit Tuesday, uh, and he's going to discuss the Neighborhood Homes Tax Credit. And that's legislation that would create uh, a credit. It was introduced in the Senate uh, and in the House, and it could be part of infrastructure legislation. Uh, I recently testified at a House Ways and Means Committee hearing about the use of the tax code to invest in infrastructure. And the Neighborhood Homes Investment Tax Credit was one of several potential new tax provisions that I testified about. Also, by the way, uh, future podcasts are going to cover some of the other uh, potential new tax credits that I testified about, including the Middle Income Housing Tax Credit. Now, you can make sure that you're notified as soon as that episode and future episodes are available by following or subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. You can go to www.novaco.com slash podcast to subscribe to and to stream the show on our website. You can also follow or subscribe to Tax Credit Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Radio Public. Now, let's turn to our off-mic segment, where listeners get to know a little bit more about our guests. So let's start with this question for Aaron. What are your favorite podcasts? And you can't say Tax Credit Tuesday. <laughs> well, then that really limits my response. Um, 
because I only subscribe to two podcasts on my Spotify. And if I'm not allowed to share one of those, the other is The Office Ladies. Um, I've been a big fan of the show, The Office, and and watched it several times over. And so I really enjoy that podcast as well. So what is The Office Ladies? So it's uh, two of the main characters. Uh, their characters are Pam and Angela um, and they basically just share uh, kind of behind the scenes information about filming the show or the different episodes. And, and, you know, it's just kind of comedic in nature and, you know, something light to listen to. And again, just kind of gives you that background for the show. You know, it makes you appreciate it that much more whenever you watch the episode again. Got it. Okay. So, so let's, uh, next question. What part of your job as a CPA energizes you the most? So that's really a great question. And actually, I get to answer it um, often because I do help with interviewing our intern and new new hire candidates um, in our office in Dover. Um, so what I tell them uh, you know, quite frequently is that I really enjoy that being a CPA allows me to continually challenge myself. Um, you know, the tax code's always evolving and gap rules are always changing. And so... You know, I just get some energy from, you know, starting something new and learning something new each time. I'm not doing the same thing I was doing, you know, a year ago or even sometimes a month ago. Um, and that really is just something I look forward to uh, so that I can continue to grow my knowledge and grow my career. Great. Uh, next question. What's the best piece of professional advice they've ever received? So my professional advice actually came from my dad. Um, you know, when I was first starting my career more when I was in college and just finishing up, um, he said to, you know, make a five-year plan for yourself. And, you know, that's a good, good practice, but then don't just stop there, revisit that plan every year and see what you need to change for the next five years. And so, you know, that's really been great advice. Um, I think that's what's allowed me to be where I am today in my career. And, you know, that's something I, I valued because I definitely had to make some changes year to year because, um, you know, I had a family and my family grew a little faster and um, a little bigger than I expected. And so it was something that definitely weighed into kind of my career plan as well um, and, and something I had to adjust kind of on the career side to maintain, you know, the, the work-life balance that I needed to do. Yeah, that's a uh, wonderful. That's great advice. So, uh, my last one. This is a new uh, question for Cash Credit Tuesday. A new off mic question. What's a fun fact about you that isn't l listed on your LinkedIn profile? Well, so my fun fact, you know, for parties is that I do know how to juggle. Um, I'm limited to only three objects, and they all have to be uh, generally the same size. You know, I, I can't, you know, juggle any sort of knives or anything exciting like that. But, um, you know, maybe a couple apples, it, it, I can get those going. Um, but I also, uh, as I mentioned before, you know, my family grew a little more rapidly um, and a little bigger than I expected because I do have um, four daughters, and they are currently seven six and five-year-old identical twins. Um, so, uh, you know, as I said, just the family grew very, very quickly. And, um, you know, there was, there was a bonus on, on the <laughs> twins there. 
Well, you said you can uh, juggle three. If something tells me you're juggling four. Right, right. Well, yeah, sometimes that is four. how it feels. Definitely. Um, but well, That's something we have in common because I can, uh, I'm the same with you. I can juggle three balls. <laughs> <laughs> I also have four children, so I guess I'm juggling oh, wow. four. Well. <laughs> okay. Well, there, that, that's a great thing to have in common. Well, very good. Thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.